out from what could be another historic election cycle. Control of Congress hangs in the balance. Will it be a red wave, a red tsunami, or something different altogether? Our special guest this week, Josh Krashauer, senior politics reporter for Actios, for a look inside the crystal ball of what to expect in the midterm elections. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, great to be with you as we stand on the precipice of yet another November. We've been through it as campaign hacks ourselves, and now we get to comment on other people sweating it out and getting up very early next Tuesday. Indeed, indeed. It's going to be an interesting one, you know, lots of conventional wisdom. And I'm sure our guests will give us lots of inside analysis and breakdown about how much of it is real and how much of it is hype. And let's get to our guest, Josh Kroshauer, old friend. You may remember him from past episodes, a great friend of Jewish Insider and the podcast. He was last time with us, the senior politics reporter, the uh, guru of uh, national politics for National Journal, where he was for many, many years. Since then, he has shifted over to Axios, where he is now senior politics reporter. Josh Kroshauer, welcome to the podcast. Rich, Jared, great to be back on the show. What's happening? I mean, I feel like... Everybody was thinking big red wave coming maybe a year ago, eight months ago. Then Supreme Court abortion. Everybody over the summer saying, "Ooh, maybe no, maybe no big wave." Trump getting involved in some primaries. Everybody's getting scared. And now I, I see headlines out of Josh in Axios red tsunami coming. What is going on? Well, look, the fundamentals always have been the same. You're talking about the first midterm of, of a new president. You've got democratic control of Congress and the presidency. That, that always leads to headwinds for the party out of power. So that, that always was the same. Now, what we saw over the summer was that Democrats, because of the, the ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, definitely were much more engaged. And I still think that if you look at the data, if you look at the turnout, early voting, polling, you name it, Democrats are showing up. Democrats are engaged in the midterm elections. And that is definitely a product of, of what happened over the summer. It's a product of uh, just the, the very, specifically the base getting upset about abortion rights in some states being, being threatened or overturned. But the reality is there are a lot of other issues at play in the, in the midterms. It's not just abortion. It's the state of the economy, which is looking especially volatile and, and, and tricky and, and we may hear a lot more about the recession uh, of 2023 from leading economists because the the data and, and the headwinds or the data and the leading indicators about, about where things are headed economically do not look particularly good. Inflation uh, is still a major, major problem. You add a lot of Americans not feeling a sense of security, crime in, in major cities and major metropolitan areas on the rise and are putting states like New York, the governor's race in New York, some house races in New York, Oregon, the Republicans are now ahead narrowly in the Oregon because of crime, homelessness. These are major number one, number two issues in states um, that have had major crime issues, problems. And then you got, then you got, then you got also just the, the, you know, the, the battle of winning over the voters that don't pay attention to politics like we all do. Right. And every election year you get, independent swing voters, many of them very disengaged from politics. They're not listening to the podcast. They tune all this stuff out. 
But ultimately, they're voting on their pocketbooks. And ultimately, they're going to respond based on whether they think the country is headed in the right direction or the wrong direction. And overwhelmingly, we're seeing in many of these key races, these undecided, less politically obsessed voters starting to break more towards the Republican Party. And it's given the Republicans a bit of a, of a boost in the final few weeks of the election. So, Josh, you brought it up. My home state of New York. Do we really think a pro-Trump Republican is going to get elected governor of the state of New York. I mean, the polling's kind of been all over the place, right? There was another one that I saw earlier today that said, no, really, Hochul's got like a pretty decent margin. Um, it's not the blowout that maybe we expected, like you're seeing in Maryland, where uh, Wes Moore is running against a pro-Trump Republican in, in, a, in a, a state that elects Republican governors. Do we really think Lee Zeldin has a shot in New York State? He has an outside shot because the issue of crime is so uh, transcendent, frankly, in, in certain states, certain areas. Um, you, I, I always like to look at house races as early indicators of, of what's happening. And one of the big stories that we reported on at Axios first and, and a lot of other folks, the Cook Report just made a big move this week, is that Sean Patrick Maloney, not far from New York City in, in, in the Westchester and I believe Rockland County suburbs, it's a Biden plus 10 district. Uh, is now worried, and, and, and Democrats are now pouring money into that race because they are worried about the... Ch the Republicans are coming after the king, and, and they think that they may have a chance to unseat the chairman. And that's, that's a sign... That, that only happens when they're waves. You don't see that in a normal election. That, that type of dynamic only happens in a true wave-type scenario. Um, look, I think Zeldin is the underdog. I I think that, you know, I'd be surprised if he, if he wins. But you said he's... I mean, Yes, he's a Trump Republican, but he doesn't necessarily come across that way to your average New Yorker. He's one of the few Jewish Republicans in, in, in Congress, lives in the Long Island suburbs. He certainly was a leading advocate for Trump during that second, was it the first? One of the, I guess it was the first impeachment where he was uh, front and center defending the, the president. But he, he's not, he doesn't come across like Jim Jordan. He doesn't come across like Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that's uh, part of his political appeal, that he's not alienating the base but he's, you know, running on the issue that a lot of New Yorkers care about. And one of the interesting things about this campaign, guys, is that he is spending more time in New York City than any other Republican. I, maybe since Giul you, know, you, have to, you have to go back to the Giuliani days to see the Repub of any Republican in New York spending this much time in the city because there's a bet going on among Republicans that a lot of solidly Democratic voters are so sick of the crime problem that they actually might vote for a pro-Trump Republican. Uh, but by enough, like getting 30, 25, 30 percent of that vote, that it might be enough to to make a difference in that race. I, I hope it's still the favorite. Like, don't get me wrong. New York is a very blue state, but the polling is real. The competitiveness of that race is, is real. I, I want to zoom out uh, to some national races, governors, uh, Senate, and then come back to the House. But we're in New York, so I want to stay in New York before I zoom out, uh, especially given Jared's obsession with, with how certain House races will turn out. I, I am seeing some public, some not public numbers out of these house races in New York that are stunning. Um, districts that Joe Biden won by high double digits now with congressional candidates, opponents, uh, folks who are looking like they're either poised to win or, or, or close races. New York four is a rumor out there. We saw the D triple C chairs race being moved uh, into potential toss up territory. What else is, what should we be watching for here? What are the key races you're looking at in, in New York? Yeah, there are, there, are, there are a bunch of them. Um, starting, I would go downstate or closer to New York City, you've got the Hudson Valley races 
Pat Ryan, by the way, had a, we should give Democrats a lot of credit for their big special election win in, in the, what was the, I guess the, the 19th district. But you have Pat Ryan running for re-election against a different uh, Republican candidate. You've got the, the new 19th district, which is essentially an open seat where Molinaro is now, now running again further up, up north. Um, th- those are districts that Biden won by about five, six, seven points, but they're pure toss-ups. Um, and they're, you know, again, the issues seem to be moving in, in the GOP's direction. But look, Democrats won a big special over the summer and uh, that they're holding their hat on that on that on that race in terms of hoping that they can cut their losses in, in New York. Uh, you've got you've got Long Island. You've got uh, some races in Long Island. You mentioned the fourth congressional district. That is, uh, I believe it's about a Biden plus 14 district. It's very Democratic. But in the local elections in 2021, and that's a lot of people are reading into what happened in New York and New Jersey in the off year in, in 2021. That was when Republicans almost won the New Jersey governorship. And yep. in, in Nassau County, where that fourth congressional district is based, uh, they unseated the, the county Democrat longtime, I believe, the fairly county executive, yep. well-regarded county executive. Um, I've seen her on Fox News actually quite a bit uh, in the last year um, because that is where those winds are shifting. It's the crime. It's, you know, the economy, it's inflation. And that's where Republicans are making some inroads. So uh, I will say Democrats have a good candidate in the fourth in, in, in Laura Gillen. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Kathleen Rice is a moderate Democrat who if, if more Democrats talk like Kathleen Rice, I think they'd be in much better shape uh, in some of these these races. But um, you know, that, that the whole tide, the whole national mood is shifting away from the Democratic Party right now. You mentioned Oregon. Um, there's probably others. What are you seeing there? I don't know how many people are, are, are looking at that race. I've seen it. it it's kind of crazy and stunning that you'd have a Republican uh, become governor of Oregon. But any other gubernatorial races we should be looking at uh, around the country that may not be on people's radar? Yeah, so in Oregon, you've got this schism within the Demo- Civil War, really, between the moderate Democrats and the progressive Democrats. Um, so, so in some races in other states, the Democrat is, is losing momentum because of being too far to the left. But in the case of Oregon, you literally have a woman who was a former state legislator in Betsy Johnson, who was a moderate Democrat, running against the, 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 the state speaker, uh, Tina Kotek, who is a much more progressive Democrat. So they're splitting the Democratic vote. And uh, Christine Drazen, who's the Republican former legislative leader, is, uh, you know, either ahead or tied in, in, in the latest wave of polling. Um, it's, what's interesting, and, and this is connected to the House race stuff, when I talk to strategists on both sides, what they're seeing is that in some of the bluer states, like we're, we're, talking, we're talking about New York and Oregon, like these are not usual uh, battlegrounds uh, lately, but areas that just haven't seen real competitive uh, competitive elections lately are actually more competitive this time around. We were traditional battlegrounds like Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, you name all the all the swing states, Georgia. The, those states are actually still looking like very they're going to be very competitive. So it's not like there's a wave. The wave is actually more concentrated in some of these blue states where there are a lot of moderate voters that vote Democrat that are like, boy, this one party rule hasn't worked out so well in the last decade, and we want to maybe see what, what the Republicans will do when they're in charge. I also will add, governor's races are different than, than congressional races. So it's, it's you know, Republicans are making inroads in, in some of these bluer congressional districts, but it's easier to make this about, you know, the national issues at a, at a Senate or House race level. It's a lot harder to do that entirely at the governor's race level. So, so before we shift to the Senate, two more uh, gubernatorial races I want to get your take on. 
Um, Shapiro in, uh, in Pennsylvania, do we think he pulls it out? He's been running ahead. It's gotten pretty ugly. Uh, you know, there have been some not so veiled, uh, anti-Semitic shots taken at him by his opponent's campaign. Um, and, and then obviously I wouldn't be, uh, asking if I didn't ask on your take in, uh, Maryland, but I could probably answer that one myself. <laughs> but, but talk to us about the Pennsylvania well, governor's race. Jared, there's a theme in those two races and other races, frankly, across the country. Extremism is a big turnoff. Extremism does not sell politically in a general election. And whether you're a, Repu- a far right Republican like Mastriano or you're a far left uh, candidate like Tina, you know, like Tina Kotek in, in Oregon or Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, you are paying a big political price. You're, you're not winning swing voters. You're not winning people in the middle. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, Mastriano has got the Republican right wing base up really excited, but he's not spending much money. He's not getting help from outside Republican groups. He said a whole bunch of anti-Semitic or has been at least tied to a lot of anti-Semitic uh, organization or Gab and other other uh, groups that are that are very, uh, you know, extreme. And that is unacceptable to a lot of swing voters in the Philly suburbs and across the state of Pennsylvania. So there's a sort of a a ceiling that Mastriano has that has benefited uh, Josh Shapiro, the state attorney general. And you're going to see it in Pennsylvania. I I, I expect a whole lot of people who vote for Shapiro for for governor and vote for Dr. Oz for the Senate race. And I I wrote about this in in the Sunday uh, Sneak Axios newsletter, but Oz is actually, you know, whatever you think of Dr. Oz, he is running a pretty smart campaign, portraying himself as the mainstream guy and Fetterman as the guy who's extreme. So he actually has an ad up in Pennsylvania right now. Literally, you're basically saying you you, you should reject the extremes. And he's this, the implication is that you should reject Mastriano and Fetterman, putting them in that same box. And that's a you know a very triangulating strategy for uh, for someone who has his own baggage with, with Dr. Oz. I, I mean, I, I was in the Philly suburbs over the weekend and I saw a billboard on 95 that just said, Fetterman equals crime. Like, wow, right? I mean, and and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't doesn't help him that he the guy hasn't campaigned because of his health issues in person in quite a while, right? And so, you know, it's not a retail sport, but it is. I mean, look, it, whatever you think of criminal justice reform, anyone who's on the ballot on the Democratic Party who has taken a vote, like for you know, bail overhauling, or has called for defunding the police or has said things in their past that are from the activist wing of the Democratic Party, that stuff is political poison. It is Mandela Barnes was leading by, you know, a handful of points over the summer. And then the ads about his past comments and past record were aired and the the race shifted dramatically in Wisconsin. Fetterman is dealing. I think Fetterman's done a better job of responding um, to some of these attacks. But look, as lieutenant governor, he was head of a parole board where he was taking a very uh, leading role in trying to, in, in his view, like people who, who were serving life sentences that had done shown some rehabilitation in prison, he wanted to uh, release them uh, early. And that, um, whatever you think of that issue, that's not right now politically popular in Pennsylvania at a time when crime is, is, is very much on the rise. The two biggest losers in this election cycle, Koch and Soros, the two biggest funders of the issues being pummeled in this election cycle. Uh, We're looking at the Senate race more broadly as well, control of the Senate uh, in the balance. Uh, We'll get the House in a second. 
But, uh, you know, Jared touched on this. Obviously, there were some primary battles where the former president inserted himself, Pennsylvania, uh, obviously being one, Arizona uh, being another. Uh, where where do you see the map to date? Uh, you mentioned a lot of races, uh, very tight in places, but it also seemed like a lot of people were writing off Republican hopes of the Senate just a couple months ago. And now with surges in Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, races tightening, uh, maybe some weird wild cards in Alaska you'll tell us about. But, uh, you know, w- what do we think this looks like? The, the Senate is, is a toss up with I think it's no better than 50. I mean, it's no worse than 50 50 for Republicans. But the trend lines and the wind and the momentum is certainly at the Republican party's back right now now the problem for republicans in the senate is that they nominated some pretty uh extreme uh you know uh, out of the mainstream characters whether you're talking about don bolduck in new hampshire you know blake masters in arizona herschel walker in georgia so th- those are tests of whether the environment matters more whether people just want to check they don't care about the candidates they're they're voting like this is a parliamentary system and they want republicans to be in charge of the senate or whether these, you know, not ready for prime time candidates will truly cost uh, the Republicans either the Senate or, or at the very least some valuable seats in, in expanding their their majority. Uh, the one new, one bit of news over the over the last week is that the big super PAC that Mitch McConnell's allies are running, spending tons of money in a big all these big battlegrounds, they they pulled out of the New Hampshire Senate race, even though Maggie Hassan's numbers are you know certainly in a vulnerable position. Um, so that there's a sign that Don Bolduc, the Republican nominee, who is well to the right of, of Chris Sununu and, you know, anyone, any, a lot of the other candidates that ran up there, there's a belief that he's just too, too out there to, to win, even in a good political environment. Herschel Walker, I mean, Paul, I, that, that race is neck and neck. It may go to a runoff if neither candidate gets 50%. And boy, wouldn't that be, be crazy if we have another, another month of, uh, of Herschel Walker and, and Senator Warnock uh, of, of political overtime. And, uh, you know, look, what's interesting about um, Arizona is that's a, that's, that's a state that you would think would want to vote, you know, it's a state that has a Republican history, but it also has a Republican party that's moved, moved farther and farther to the far right and has indulged some of this extreme rhetoric and extreme positioning in, in recent years. Uh, so Kelly was looking pretty good and still, I think, has a, at least a slight advantage down the home stretch. But a lot of the Republicans and even some of the swing voters are moving a little bit more Republican as gas prices are going up in Arizona and as the overall mood of the country is, is turning against the Democrats. Josh, do you think if the Republicans don't take the Senate, there's going to be any kind of soul searching about like if you had a candidate, if, if the, you know there's a red wave in the House, but with a candidate like with the candidates you have in New Hampshire, the candidate you have in Georgia, like if you had a, a good candidate there, like. If there's a red wave, you probably should take that seat, right? Uh, do you think that the, the Republicans will, will do that soul searching? Um, you know, going into uh, um, you know the, the the Donald Trump like uh, it's like the LeBron James. Um, you know, wh- where will he go? Will he or won't he? Like, or or is the Republican Party not capable of like doing both of those things simultaneously? So I would look at those Arizona, Georgia, and Ohio races where Trump endorsed. And where the candidates are essentially running pretty close to the base, even as the nominees, right? These are Trump endorsed candidates that are, that are running to the right and they're, they're testing the limits of how, how far you can go ideologically. Look, I think this has a lot to do, Jared, about Trump's decision making for 2024. Whether if Trump, if Republicans win the Senate or lose the Senate, but they don't win those seats, 
if they lose her, if, if Trump costs them Georgia because of Herschel Walker, if Blake Masters comes a point or two short in Arizona, I mean, you can lay the blame pretty easily on the hands of Donald Trump, uh, costing the Republican Senate seats that may end up cost, costing them the, the majority. Um, so there will be a lot of uh, infighting, especially if the environment was so good that you normally would see Republicans winning those types of races. But conversely, if Blake Masters wins, if Dr. Oz wins, if Herschel Walker wins, J.D. Vance in Ohio win, if he goes 4-0, then you can make a pretty compelling argument that this stuff doesn't, candidates don't matter. Trump was right that he was able to get candidates that reflect that base. And they can, and then that's a lesson for 2024 that you can have Donald Trump and it, it really isn't going to cost you a whole lot politically, despite all the hand wringing from a whole lot of pundits like myself, right? So, you know, that those races, even no matter, no matter who wins the majority, Arizona, I'm looking at closely and Georgia, I'm looking at closely because it's really going to tell us how big of a penalty do you pay for being so closely tied to that Trump wing of the party. Okay. That's the U.S. Senate. U.S. House. We touched a little bit of the New York races, a lot of other races around the country for Republicans to take the House and potentially build what I'm hearing is a 20, 25 seat majority, maybe with, with the red wave. What are you seeing? What are the races we should be watching? Yeah, so I, I'm fascinated by these blue these blue blue district races where Republicans are putting a whole lot of money as we Reported last week at Axios, $30 million are being spent by the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the, the Kevin McCarthy super PAC, uh, aligned super PAC, um, in, in districts that Biden won by double digits. These are, these are districts that Democrats hold that Biden won by 10 points or more. Katie Porter, California. Um, this is a race in Connecticut with John, Jared, you're probably familiar with the, like, that North, that New York City suburbs of Connecticut, but there's a, a really interesting race between Johanna Hayes, who is, an African-American lawmaker who was, I believe, Teacher of the Year and has gotten a lot of accolades back home. But she's running against uh, a, a pretty groundbreaking African-American, uh, former African-American state legislator in George Logan in, in a race that's very competitive. Um, you've got Alan Fung in Rhode Island in a Biden plus 14 district. That's that's awfully close. Um, so there's anyways, they're about a handful or more of these blue district races that are, I think, going to tell us if there's a really, really big, big wave coming. And based on where the money is being spent in the final few weeks, the money is being uh, spent on, on these reach districts. These districts aren't just going to decide which party holds the majority, but are going to be seats that could determine if Republicans have a historic type majority come 2023. Come 2023. And is the credit here for recruitment uh, on the NRCC's part uh, for all these different races, uh, candidate recruitment, getting through the primaries, or is it just, you know, Donald Trump focused on some gubernatorial and Senate primaries and didn't meddle as much in the House races? Well, you know, Donald Trump, aside from the 10 Republicans who, impe- who voted to impeach Trump, Trump didn't have the attention span to really go through all the, the House battlegrounds. So, Yes, there are a handful of not ready, handful of extreme MAGA oriented candidates that are not particularly strong in the, the districts that they're running in. But by and large, Republicans actually spent money in primaries to get better candidates than because Trump wasn't paying attention to a whole lot of these districts. You actually have more, uh, pragmatic candidates that came through the primary, primaries in the House. You have the most diverse, uh, at least according to Republican leadership, they're touting uh, the diversity. Uh, it, the racial diversity in the in this recruiting class, where they think they could have as many as six African American Republicans in the House, 
uh, next year if, if everything goes their way in these toss-up races. And they also boast that they're, they're recruiting Hispanic candidates. And if you look at the three closest races in Texas, they're all on the Rio Grande Valley border with uh, Mexico. These are districts that have voted Democrat for, for decades, centuries even. And um, they're, they're very, there's a possibility that they all could go Republican uh, in this wave, if there's a wave election. And um, you have Hispanic uh, Republicans talking about border security, talking about immigration, talking about crime that have really found a message and are looking at a possible realignment in that neck of the woods. So yeah, like the, the, um, the size of the wave matters, right? The, if, 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 or the size of the, the pickup that Republicans get matter. So, you know, if, if McCarthy gets 15 seats, that, that's a good year. It's a good year for Republicans to take back the house, but he's going to have a hell of a time wrangling that, uh, narrow majority and, and getting everyone on the same page given how fractured their their own party is. But if you get 20 or more seats, that's my magic number, the Mendoza line, and if Republicans get 20 or more seats, that means they're, 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 they've got more House seats than, than Newt Gingrich had in 94. It means they get close to the, the big wave elections of 2010 and 2014, where Republicans had uh, historic, you know, they had the highest number of seats in 2014, going all the way back to the 1920s. So, like, if you're getting into the 25, 30 number or more, that that's when you're talking about a historic, you know, category four, category five type type political storm. And the lesson could be right that like when Donald Trump stays away and you pick moderates, you win, right? I mean, imagine that if if the House wave is quite large and the Senate wave maybe not so much. But but I want to ask you about the second most important state on this podcast, which would be Illinois. The first, of course, being New York. Um, there are some interesting and competitive house races in Illinois as well. And I know Rich was going to ask you about it, but I just had to get in there before him because, uh, I can I find Illinois. That. That's on a, a lot of respect for Illinois hey, coming from hey, you. Thank you. No, no, I pretty well, like teeny, teeny bit, but yes, go Josh. Talk to us about Illinois house races. Boy, well, that, that, that's a state where Democrats control the redistricting process. So, uh, they, they tried to gerrymander, uh, in their favor, a whole lot of seats, but, because we're looking at a pretty good year for Republicans, you're, there are still competitive races in Illinois. I think the best opportunity is probably Sherry Bustos's seat, which is she's retired, t- retiring. She's the former uh, chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And it's a seat that voted for Biden, but it's one where, um, you know, it's a very close race where Esther Joy King is the Republican nominee and Eric Sorensen, who's a meteorologist on one of the local news channels, is the Democratic nominee. And it's you know, if it's a wave election, that's probably a seat that ends up flipping. But right now, the polls show a very, very close race. Um, you know, the 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 sixth district, not too far from, I think we're you know we're, we're, we're riches from. Um, you know, that is an if there's a huge wave, um, that's not a race that's getting a lot of money invested in it. But it's uh, Sean Caston's seat. He won a tough primary against. Uh, a far left uh, member of Congress, and uh, he seems to be in pretty good shape. But if, again, if this is, it's the type of race that, that could be closer than expected if we see a very, very sizable Republican race. Josh, what else should we be looking at uh, for Jewish voters out there, uh, other communities, uh, any other trends, things we haven't covered uh, as uh, as people are casting their ballots and early voting and mail voting if they trust it and uh, and getting ready. And to if, they're, if they're allowed to there. by uh, state governments and not disenfranchised. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Too soon, Rich? Too soon? 
Well, I mean, that's a big fact. I, mean, I was going to say that just the, the, the battle over voting has become an issue in and of itself this, this year. Um, they're clearly uh, the, the, <laughs> the election denialism within the Republican Party, which we, I thought we might abate by now, is, is, if anything, more powerful than ever within the party. Um, you're, you're seeing Secretary of State candidates, you know, pledging to turn back uh, not just the pandemic rules that, that were so controversial in the last election, but, but get rid of mail-in voting and get in, get, get rid of early voting and a whole lot of other, uh, you know, reforms designed to expand the ability to, to vote. Um, and, you know, and obviously 2024, the subtext of what's going to happen, you know, vis-a-vis 2024. And will candidates concede if it's a, Arizona is going to be probably a pretty close contest across the board. And, uh, will these are also, it's also a state where you have a lot of leading uh, Republicans who are denying the results of the last election. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if there's a close race in Arizona. Will the losers concede? Um, you know, how is that going to play itself out? So, Josh, you're one of the leading Washington political correspondents in the land. Okay, You you know more about this stuff than, than probably anybody else in Washington, give or take a few. How are you going to be spending your election night? Tell, walk us through how that 24-hour period goes. Uh, include, include beverage choices. Yeah, include beverage choices, beverages. food, seeing family, sleep. Tell, like, give us the, the human angle on this because I know my election night rituals, uh, I, but I'm a partisan. And so I, I know what I'm going to be doing on election night day. But what, what are you going to be doing as, as one of the chief chroniclers of all of this? Well, I, I can tell you what I've done the last It's very actually an easy answer to, to tell you guys. Um, so I've been over the last, I think, three or four elections, I've been uh, the color commentator on Fox News's radio broadcast of, of election night. So I've been literally chronicling the results and, and the developments in uh, real time every election, I think, since the 2016 election. Uh, so we, I was there until two, 2 or 3 in the morning in 2020, uh, going over Arizona <laughs> late into the night, going over all the other swing states. And, and this year, I, I, I'll probably be doing both radio and, and television at Fox, you know, breaking down all the election results. So if you want to Tune in if you want to see my uh, or what listen to my commentary. You can you know watch Fox News or listen to uh, Fox affiliate, and you'll probably get some in real time analysis of uh, what's going on. But are you in the studio? Or are you doing it from home? Like, how does that walk us through that day? I want a little bit more of the you know behind the curtain for the Jewish Insider Living the Liability podcast listeners. Like, like okay, the clock goes off on election. You're obviously up crazy late the night before, but like so the your alarm clock goes off on election day. Like, take us through that 24 hours. Right. So I'll be in New, in New York. So that's where, where all the bad Oh, I'm sorry. Happens. Say that again. Is my good ear? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You hear that, Rich? He's going to be in New York. I'll be in New York. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, you guys know this. I, I, you know, being involved this closely with politics as, as, as you have. But, you know, the, the day of the election is, frankly, a little bit anticlimactic. You know, it's if you want to kind of get your energy prepared for what is the Super Bowl of politics uh, every every election night. and. You know, I, I usually pull an all-nighter uh, or close to it on election night, but you want to be rested. You want to get, you want to be, you know, fueled up to go so you can basically break down all, all the craziness that happens on election night. So, it's like, election day, like, there's no, there's no real news in, in most uh, – on the day of the election. It's really, you know, the night of election night when polls close and then all the counting. And, by the way, like, we're going to probably have weeks of counting in, in close races because of the – some of the new rules in certain states that California takes like several weeks to count their, their votes in, in some of these house races. Uh, new York, how long did it take to, to, to declare a winner in the primary for the mayor's race this oh, past yeah, year? It was, it was so, awful. 
so it's, you're going to see a lot, I mean, especially with New York and California actually being battlegrounds for the House and in New York for the, possibly the governorship this year. Um, we may not be talking about election night. We may be talking about like weeks after the election to get get a winner uh, or to get some clarity in, in what happened, if it's close at least. So, yeah, like this is, it used to be like, you know, for the most part, you've got everything resolved by the next morning. The way, I mean, one, one of the more legitimate critiques about some of these new voting rules is that you, it takes weeks to make a call in, 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 some, in some cases. And I could, you know, if New York or California were battleground states in the presidential race, you could see a real problem where you couldn't get the vote certified in time for, you know, the Electoral College and all the other uh, confirmations that take place. So I, I, I'm always a big, you know, believer in giving as many people access, you know, making sure it's as easy to vote as possible. But when you have a situation like New York where you can't count votes efficiently or effectively, uh, or efficiently at least, maybe not a, hopefully it's effective, um, you know, that, that's a, that, that raises questions, that raises concerns about, you know, how, 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 um, competent i guess the election administration officials are well god help us all if it all comes down to alaska so so there you go and that's all gonna, right that's all right we didn't talk about all of it yet lisa murkowski big race in, in alaska as well as sarah palin trying to make a, another political comeback does she have does she does sarah palin have a shot i mean she lost she lost the, she has a shot in the special the first and second rounds yeah well you know i mean I, this is it's a longer story than we have time for but alaska is an example of Alaska may vote for a very popular Democratic uh, newly elected congresswoman, despite all the political. The, the, the Alaska's election system is unique. It's a ranked choice system. And uh, the, if anything, the Demo- Democrats may have a better chance at that Alaska House race than they do in a lot of these other toss up races. All right, Josh, one last thing. Do you have a, a, a great or, or a notable election night story? Something totally wacky that you either saw behind the scenes or somebody said to you something that sticks out in your head of all these years of covering uh, election nights, anything that, that, you know, a quirky story or something that you could share with our listeners. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'll, one, the one story I'll tell you, it's not election night as much as it is. I, when I, when I was at the hotline, when I was working, uh, uh, hotlines up, hotlines up. We used to myself and some colleagues occasionally would, uh, on an election year, go to a random uh, precinct and just survey voters and do, do our own like focus group and, and polling. Um, I know we did that. I think in the two, me and a good friend did that in 2006, I think for the Virginia Senate race, we just went to one of these swing precincts and just randomly schmoozed with the voters. Um, and I, I, mean, I, I'm someone who like, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in like listening. I think democracy, you know, democracy is all about listening to voters and what they're saying. And uh, you know, it always helped me kind of anticipate the trends and the dynamics in any given race. And uh, I, I always enjoyed, you know, just, we, I remember, uh, you know, uh, just, just talking to voters in a rainy precinct outside of Alexandria for, for the Senate race uh, in Virginia that year and getting a good grasp on, on what voters were thinking about. Josh Crosshar, Axios now, Axios. First time, I think, on the JI podcast is Axios. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Uh, for a great uh, election preview and look forward to having you back soon. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, guys. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.